All for one family on stage. Their first gig, The Cars. It didn't go in that we could actually be meeting our producer or that this could be a major record year for us. If you feel the emotion in every song, you give across the emotion of the song. You have been a wonderful audience and we will remember this. We will be back. When you're put in a situation where you have to perform, where you have to deliver, no matter what, something happens. That's why we're doing it. We're doing it because we love it. Hi, this is Simon Phillips. I play drums on Toss the Feathers and had a wonderful time doing it. You are listening to Cause Cast. Hi, welcome. This is a new venture to find a piece of the podcast world where the cores are celebrated, specifically focusing on their first album, Forgiven Not Forgotten. My name's Simon. I'm your host for the time being. Um, no doubt in future episodes, we will have guest hosts, uh, others to come on and discuss from the fan community and generally celebrate and explore the creation of the first album to begin with. And then let's see where the world takes us from there. Fandom is a big place. There is a lot of people. I guess I should start with explaining how this project came about. How do I suddenly find myself creating a podcast for the cause? I guess it was late 2019. Uh, I was listening to a lot of podcasts very inspired by podcasts such as JC's Musicology, um, listening to him break down artists I've loved for decades, uh, their music and exploring demo versions, etc. was just incredibly inspiring. It was like listening to tracks I'd heard for years for the first time all over again. Um, and then realising maybe, maybe I could do a tenth of that. Maybe I could do 5% of that when it comes to another band I love, which was The Cause. Being the year it was, uh, it was coming up to 25 years since the first Cause album was released. Um, 25 years, I thought, was a good milestone to maybe explore that album. And then either in my foolishness or wisdom, while lockdown had started, I decided to proactively try and reach out to everybody I could involved in the creation of the album to see if they wished to talk about their experiences 25 years on, what the album meant to them, uh, what it was like being in the studio and the, the development of the sound that we know to be forgiven, not forgotten now. To my surprise during lockdown, with people having more time on their hands than they otherwise may have found themselves with, they replied with yes, a resounding yes. Every single person I've asked so far to record a discussion regarding the album and their work on it has been more than kind and more than glad to discuss and explore and sit patiently through my many questions. Um, the outcome of that has been many short as well as long recordings regarding the album's production, recording and eventual release. Hopefully this will be appreciated by the fan community whom I owe a huge debt to. Uh, many years of going to many live gigs and discussions on forums, etc. Uh, certainly kept my fandom alive, especially when the band has gone into hiatus so that they can have their own families and have their own lives apart from music. I'll kick things off with the first interview, which was with Simon Phillips, who lent his amazing drumming skills to a number of tracks uh, which we get to discuss together 
in this next recording. I hope you enjoy. I guess to start things off, how did you get chosen for this, this part and why were you chosen for this? I mean, at that stage, it's just another, it's just another session, but with hopefully with one of my favorite engineers, which is great. And I hadn't worked with David before, but I'd met him. So yeah, it was a question of, right, we got some sounds and, uh, and then I met the, uh, the, 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 the cause. Obviously I, I figured out they were Irish and I went, oh, great. Oh, yeah, that, that's kind of fun, you know? And then I was um, kind of, okay, well, this, this will be interesting, you know? You know we just, uh, I remember getting, you know, as you normally do, get sounds and grab a coffee and uh, go to the, into the control room and listen to the track. So, you know, after saying all the hellos and the introductions, it was like, okay, well, here's the track, you know? Can you remember what it was like listening to that track? How was it presented to you in the studio? Um, basically from the multi-track that they were working on. Uh, I'm not sure if it had a drum track on it, like a, like a program drum track, or whether it was just with a click. But I remember hearing the music and went, oh, this sounds great. Because I, uh, I love Irish folk music. I like uh, mostly Celtic you know, folk music. Mm -hmm. I think it's just absolutely gorgeous, um, and um, and and I could hear the the influences in it and how it had been arranged, and and I thought, oh, this is going to be perfect to play because it was it was just really fun. It was beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful piece of music, you know. And I was like, wow, okay, right, you know. And I think I might have written. Uh, I think I wrote a very quick chart out, um, just because. The chart helps you do it quickly. Uh, I'm a real believer in uh, first or second takes. I love the energy um, and the intuition, depending on the people you're working with, the, the, the producer or the artist. You know, some can be, you can get a song done in just one or two takes, mm. or you could be there all day. <laughs> you know, it, it's just one of those things but so that's why i do always do a quick chart and then um i think i went out and um did one pass probably came in to have a listen just to make sure everything was sounding good but i don't remember i, I have to admit i actually don't remember how many takes i did but i don't think it was many at all and then i think i probably went out again maybe I think everybody was happy with the sound of the kit and everything. Um, and then did another take and I think I did two punches, which means uh, just punching in for a couple of bars and punching out. Um, and uh, there was some, there were some interesting hits in the middle of the song. Uh, but, uh, uh. Yeah, oh, the breakdown it. in the middle is just, yeah, you were saying about one or two takes and giving that first time energy to it. 
it definitely comes across in the recording. I mean, yeah. wow. Yeah. There's a reason the band's then taken that song as their finale song after their encore. Yeah. You know, and Caroline's now made her own version of that break in the middle to be able to achieve it. <laughs> Great. Because I was very proud of that session. It was like I said, it was it was one of the tracks that just felt great it was at the right tempo and i was able to find a a groove very quickly that worked with it mm. i mean i enjoyed it so much i i think i said um right plenty more songs <laughs> yeah and of course leading on from that you you were in to do two songs you did toss the feathers yes and then you also did um drum inlays for the track i don't know Ah, okay. I remember doing a second, a second song, but I'm yeah. not sure if that was used. It wasn't used in the final album, no. It no. wasn't used in the final album. Probably the first time you've heard that in 25 years. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, it's good to be able to bring that back to you. It's nice. Mm. I, I remember having a, a really lovely day with with uh, with everybody. It was it was fantastic. We ordered some food. I re I remember that we had some Chinese or Thai food, I think, um, and it was great. It was a really lovely afternoon. It really was. It was it was really fun. Really sweet. Yeah. I remember, no, I was really impressed with all of them. I mean, just the music, you know, uh, she sounded great on, on that other track, which, yeah. which is probably the only other track I heard. I've read rumor that David Foster asked for you specifically for that track. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 Why do you think that is? What connection did you have prior to this that would have made him think, I know I need Simon Phillips on this track? Um, I think, well, he probably just knew the way I play. He knew that uh, I had just joined Toto. Um, I remember him coming by the studio when we were recording at Capitol. We were recording mm. Tambu at that time. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that's when I first met him. But I also seem to remember a charity gig at, at, the, at the Hollywood Bowl or the Greek theatre. I don't remember which one, because I might have done two, you see. I might be getting mixed up. One was... One was Bosnian aid. It was like a, a, a charity gig in aid of the Bosnian uh, refugees, or, or the, that whole war that was going mm. on at the time. Um, and um, so... And I know he was performing on that. So... And that could have been... Could have been 95, could have been 94. So he certainly would have seen me play because he was obviously there, you know, for the whole concert. Yeah. So I'm not really sure, or maybe he knew of my playing way before that. I, I actually don't know. Because um, I only ever worked with David that one time. Bob was brought in to engineer, my, engineer me. Yeah, because I think they knew it's a very extensive and complicated drum kit. Uh, it's not actually, it's, it's actually really easy, but a lot of people 
they get a bit frightened. A lot of engineers actually get a bit frightened of it because there's a lot of microphones, you know. And um, but Bob has recorded me a few times, and he actually knows actually it's not that difficult, you know. It's actually easy. It's just you know, it's a lot of mic stands, a lot of mics, and a lot of cables. <laughs> That's really <laughs> all it is. But if you know how to engineer, and you know, you know how to record you know acoustic instruments i think that's the, the big issue these days um he uh, he got it down beautifully yeah he got a great sound mm -hmm. so and i think david is david smart you know he said I, I think we need to get someone in who's who's maybe recorded me before or knows how to deal with this this large drum kit um so he got bob in and bob said oh yeah no problem and therefore the sounds were up in minutes literally wow I mean, as long as it takes to go bing, 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 right, next one, bing, you know what I mean? It's not rocket science. It's just, it's just common sense and, and good ears and, and knowing what you're doing. That's all it is. How did it start? How did how did drums become your art? Where did it start for you? Uh, well, my my father was um, a band leader back in well, actually, he had his first band in 1925. So, nice. um, and he was very uh, well known and successful in Britain. Um, so he uh, he he took the war years out of away from music um he did i don't think he did much music during the war he was very involved in uh he was in the RAF. so um and then after uh, uh you know after after everybody got demobbed um he got back into running his band again um and he became in the 50s like one of the leading uh uk dance bands uh, at the time wow so when i came along in the late 50s um, and uh, I was exposed to the band rehearsing at, at a house, you know? Wow. So, so I was surrounded by very shiny brass instruments, you know, tenor, uh, alto, baritone, trumpet, trombone. And, and then one day he got a new drummer, a young drummer, and he also changed the setup of the, the way the band set up in the room, the, the living room at the house, and it just so happened that the drums were the first instrument that I bumped into when I walked in at three years old. Wow. And I couldn't, it was, that was it. As soon as I saw the guy playing these drums, the pedal, the hi-hat going up and down, the shiny chrome Ludwig snare drum, although I didn't know what it was back then, that was it. And the next, and I was sent off to bed at some point, and uh, I remember sitting up with, couple of books and playing along with the uh, with wow. the band that I could hear there and that was it 
Wow. There must have been a lot of pride from your father in seeing you kind of take to music. Uh, he wasn't too thrilled about it, actually. Um, he would much rather have preferred me not to be a musician and have a, you know, straight job, safe job. My mom was very into it, though, because she was an amateur musician, uh, played very good piano, uh, played a little bit of drums. And she had done that uh, during the war, too. The Allies were in Europe. Uh, she was sent over there. She was in the army and sent over as a, she was a truck driver. And um, she would go to bars and, uh, you know, clubs over there and sit in with the band because it was, it was a question of, um, can anybody play an instrument? Yeah. Yeah, I play. Right, come on, let's, let's, you know what I mean? There, nobody was booking bands back then. <laughs> I mean, most of the towns were rubble. It's yeah. really stunning really amazing you know uh so she was very into it and um and then you know met my dad and yeah, that was it basically so she was very encouraging my dad wasn't but then i then he realized that there really was some serious uh, talent there um and then i joined his band when i was 12 years old and went on the road wow yeah wow what so, a life so you've always known an- this then from day one, you've really always known this kind of, yeah. This I was at school with a looking at my watch that had years on it, not minutes and hours. Yeah. In, 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 you know, right, I've only got three more years to go. You know, when is this over? When, when can I get out and, you know, get on the road and start playing and get in the studio? Wow. That's what I always wanted to do. Yeah, there was, there was no question about it. But I was extremely lucky to to go through life like that, you know, knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, in fact, funny little story about the cause. Um, I took my band on the road uh, a few times in the late nineties. Um, I want to say it's like 97 or 98 or something. And uh, we used to use a, a bus company over there. I think it was Len Wright. And um, so when we, when we all flew over from, from LA and, landed in some town and was in a hotel the bus would then arrive from england into wherever we were belgium or switzerland or germany probably germany and um the bus driver came out i think his name was mark ex uh, ex army guy which a lot of the bus drivers are and the first thing he said oh by the way the cause say hello to you they were, i just finished a tour with them on this bus wow isn't that funny and they said, uh, they, yeah, he said, oh, they all say hello and have a great tour and stuff like that. And I went, wow, that's really nice. So, yeah, we, we actually used their bus after, after they'd been on tour. It was really sweet. <laughs> so that was a nice, nice little story. Yeah, you know? it's a nice little tie-in that, you know, that yeah. family band, of, you know, just have the courtesy to at least acknowledge your, you know, yeah. your part in, in their, their history as well. It's nice. Very. It was, it was actually really sweet. It was lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a, a pleasure having you on. It's been, you know, really great to get back to the studio, I guess. Um, even yeah. It was so long ago and, and try and piece together what it was like to be there. And it sounds an amazing experience. Thank you for taking the time. Really means a lot. Fantastic. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Michael Thompson, and I was able to contribute guitar work to Forgiven Not Forgotten with the Coors, and uh, it was a great experience, and you are listening to Coors Cast. The next interview in the series is with the amazing Michael Thompson.
who recorded all of the session guitar work for the first album. Our conversation together started with me asking him how he first heard of the band, and more specifically, what he'd heard from David Foster, the producer, who he'd worked alongside on a number of projects. The first album, definitely, I mean, just the whole story of, I mean, they, I, I wasn't there. I had just been um, in the studio with David and, um, but they literally came into the control room of the studio and performed a couple of tunes. That's, and he signed them on the spot. That's what I've heard. Were you there for that? Were you nearby? No, I had just been there. Yeah. I was in New York City, I believe, right? Correct. And you, you'd been working with Michael Jackson on History, I believe. Yeah, I was playing on um, that song, The Earth Song with David, you know, the Michael song. And later that day, I believe, is when they came by. We were, uh, we were at Sony in New York, and we were at, we, the day before we did another tune for uh, Babyface did a duet with Lisa Stansfield that we did at the Hit Factory. But um, no, David told me about it. Man, they came in, they had the... I guess it was Jim had a guitar, they had the violin, the penny whistle, and it, they just floored him. Mm. Something incredibly attractive about that raw talent and harmony from a sibling point of oh. view, as well as a musicianship I mean, point of view. Yeah, I mean, when you can just set up in, I mean, not even set up, just perform in a control room. It's like, okay, let's see what you got, you know, and then yeah. be that together and that much of an appealing kind of thing. And um, so that that whole first album was, I was very impressed with how mapped out it was. I mean, you say there's demos for it and stuff. So I guess, you know, and Jim was really, he was really on top of it. I mean, he liked working with me because I would, um, I did all the electric stuff and um, a little bit of the acoustic stuff, but I would work it out. So he, he would do the acoustic stuff, you know, and he had a great feel and a great, great touch and stuff. But, um, yeah, we had a good little, good little uh, working relationship going there. It's really interesting because as a as a fan listening back to the record, the the session musicians are, I guess, in a way, forgotten about. They just they just are until you really dig into. Oh, hang on a minute! This was originally performed by somebody else, and then when I'm seeing it live, they're copying the person that originally performed it. Yeah, and taking their own take on it. But that's why it doesn't sound quite like the record. You know, it's just, right. or at all like it sometimes, complete yeah. differences. One instance would be, I've just interviewed Simon Phillips, who did drums on two tracks. He did um, drums for Toss the Feathers, um, great trad track. And then he also did the track, I Don't Know. Yeah. I mean, they did those separately from the sessions with David. Maybe that was a song I never even heard. But, that, but that, that's definitely like a synth, you know, that sort of imitating a lead guitar vibe. Um, I'm just wondering who would have played it. But it, it might have been, it might have been Jim. 
like I said, I, I never heard David actually, not that he couldn't solo like that, but that wasn't his thing at all. And not, over the years, I never heard him do a, a synth solo like that. Now, I remember the toss the feathers thing and it being pretty intricate. And, you know, I had to actually practice whatever the fast little line was in that song. You know, they were all staying at this, ha at um, David's wife, Linda, had a house in Malibu that was her house. And um, they were, David's studio, he put his studio in there. And so for about three or four years um, before his next Malibu house, he had his studio there, but the cores all, all stayed there with the parents and everything right in that house. So the, the studio and, and everything was, was all self-contained, you know, and um, <laughs> I'll never forget driving because it was off, it's in Malibu, but it was, it's kind of off the main road. You go in this sort of little country road kind of thing to get to her place. And um, <laughs> I'm driving in to, co to go to the session and Andrea was like, she had like a skimpy something on and she was just walking down the road, like about, you know, a quarter mile from the house. I didn't know she was who, who I was going to be working with. And my, my head was like, what who is that you know like and then we get back then i then i go to the studio and i'm getting getting ready and i meet jim and stuff and then andrea comes walking in i'm like oh wow you were who i just saw yeah yeah so you said that the they stayed on property what were they with their family was their mom and dad there then? yeah they were all staying in that house it was um it was a good little setup, especially to do to, when you're working on a record every day, you know. And I remember uh, Caroline had like a like a pad drum set. And, I mean, they were really working at their cra at their instruments and stuff. Like when, because the studio was in one part of the house, and then you know we'd go in the other part of the house, and and you know they'd be practicing. They were really working it. I was very impressed with their musicality and their their dedication and stuff but um yeah that that was a good experience and so i ended up doing a lot of sessions on that record i'll probably get back to this in a minute but it i'm interested to see how much of the construction of the tracks especially from a guitar point of view or rhythm point of view was your making yeah well i mean i think besides jim i was as far as i know i was the only guitar player on that yeah record and and like i said i think maybe for one or two um parts i would get like get a get a guitar sound like an electric guitar sound and let let jim play it i mean i say let jim play it he he already knew the part and stuff but just i, I remember just really trying to include him on uh on the thing because you know some producers David Foster being one of them are known for when they do an album like when he worked with Chicago and stuff he he uh just totally brought in his own guys mm. you know and the guys in the band that doesn't go over well you know plus Jim was so great and and he was uh uh perfect for doing that with like I said Jim Jim did some nice little acoustic stuff and um and one or two little electric things here and there I mean David 
wanted me to play all the electric stuff. But but once we had done a number of sessions and I saw how how good Jim was and how competent, it's like, you know, he already has this part. Why me learn it and play it? He's in the band. So because mm -hmm. I, I did I work with a, a few of those things where I'm working with a band and, and you always try to, even though you're a session musician coming in to play on the thing, um, you try to include them, you know, if, and sometimes it's more just a matter of diplomacy, you know, to you, but in their case, it was like, what am I going to do? Play it, play it better than him. But I had all the, the sounds and the parts and the electric thing and the vibe going on that. So it was a good, it was a good working relationship. Were you presented demo versions of anything where the guitar, the main electric guitar was filled in with synths? and then you played at the top? David had this guy named Simon Franklin that was an English guy who, who was over here for about 10 or 15 years and he had a synclav. And um, they, that was David's guy. They would construct the tracks. Um, and so I guess they were taking all the elements of the demos and stuff. And Simon was great, great with sounds, great with putting together tracks and and uh for all those 90s hits that i did with david um the band was just me and and simon and david doing all the other parts no real drummer no real bass player no you know and and they were great records and they had a they had a great sound to them but um i think jim got so enthralled with working with the synclav at one point he was saying he wanted to get one and stuff. They were super expensive. They were like 200,000 bucks or something. Wow. But pre-Pro Tools and stuff, it was it was a really cool thing. And then when you had someone who who knew, it was basically a, you know, um, a, a keyboard that, but it had all the samples and everything right in it. And wow. Simon was really quick with, drum sounds and great sounds and stuff. So he could put a track together fast. Um, Cause David liked to work, you know, fairly quickly and stuff too. And, and so anyway, I, I believe that was a lot of the thing. Those two songs that Simon played on, um, just had to have real drums, you know? Yeah. They were, they were like crying out for real drums. I, that, but the rest of it, I believe is just the, you know, the Synclav drums. I don't know how much the girls, uh, I mean, they were all there, but Jim was like the, the mastermind of the thing. And, and David was so, cause usually David Foster, I mean, he's, he has a vision for the track and, and he, he does it the way, I mean, I would play my, um, my input was my input on most of those records. He, he very rarely told me what to play or anything, but as far as the vision for the whole track, he's one of those guys, but Jim had it so, you know, David also recognized that that Jim was such a talent and he had their music so organized already what they wanted to do that it was more a matter of just getting it down. Getting it recorded and down and then yeah. after that mixing to their heart's content. Yeah. Right. And then they obviously were doing the girls on a, well, maybe Caroline, maybe she did play drum pad stuff on on some of those songs. I'm just assuming a lot of it was the sure. single drum machine, but she did have that pad kit there and I, I believe they did use her on it.
Yeah, because obviously the a year before that, before they're even signed, Jim was hiring a, a top top floor bedroom in a house a couple of corners from their family home so that they could make the demos in. And he had, you know, very basic kit for the time and keyboards so that he could program stuff up. And then oh. less than a year later, he's in the studio with David Foster and he got a co-producing credit on that album. Yeah. Like, that's mind blowing. It really was, and especially then, because David wasn't doing any co-producing with anyone, you know. But he had that much of an input on the thing that you had to call it what it was, you know. Mm, it's wonderful. And I think it's a story that needs to be told and further looked into, because it's just, yeah, it's an incredible record yeah. and an amazing, it's a kind of like a rags to riches story it's it's high yeah. couple of girls from school their older brother they're messing around with song they've got great harmony with their singing they're practicing and really putting in the hard graft to perfect their craft and then suddenly they're at the door of the biggest pop producer the world had known at that time right uh, and it all just takes off right i mean they like i said that they, they had they were so appealing with their talent and their looks and stuff that it was like a no-brainer, you know? Mm. Uh, when we did that first album, I was thinking, this is some really good stuff. I wonder if, you know, the world is gonna pick up on it, you know, and, and they did. But um, yeah, that was, that was cool. Uh, I remember during the recording of that album, cause they were in town for, for uh, I, I don't know, it seems like it must've been four or six months, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I, I played a club gig uh, j just one of my gigs I do every now and then, and and uh, but I get to really play and solo and stuff. It, and they came down. I think like Andrea, Jim, and maybe the other two girls. They all came to this club that I played at, right? And the next day, um, we had a session with David, and they they came in just like raving about the gig, and they said, "Oh, Michael was brilliant and stuff." And I remember thinking. I've worked with David Foster for, at that point, probably about seven years or something, and he's never once seen me play in a club. Like, like they, they were reporting to him that I was, you know, burning on my gig, but, um, but he hadn't actually seen me play. We had done a bunch of his live gigs together where mm -hmm. we were just, you know, backing up artists and stuff, but uh, I, I thought that was cool. I thought it was cool that they came down, and I thought it was cool that they, they really liked it, too. It's very down to earth, isn't it? It's it's that kind of small town feel. It's like, yeah. I'm no better than you. We're here to have a good time and appreciate music as well. Why would I not want to hear right. you play, you know? Yeah. And, and they were truly unknown at that point, you know? Do you, do you know what guitar you used for, or what guitar set? Oh, I, I had a bunch of them. Yeah. I had a bunch of them. This guitar, which is, it's a, uh, it's, it's a Strat, but it's not mm -hmm. the Fender. It's this thing. I've had it since 82. Wow. That is my kind of hit maker guitar that I definitely know I use that on, on a bunch wow. of it. But, but I, I would have, um, you know, in the 80s when I was struggling to, to work my way up the studio ladder, I only had this guitar. I think I had one other thing and, a, and an amp and a couple of little things. And that grew into this like really huge rig. And so 95 would have been the peak of like refrigerator rack and the whole thing. And, and that was part of it. It was like, 
you know, it was expected of a studio guitar player to come in and have all that. And and I used it. I mean, I actually need, you know, used all those sounds and and so they dug that. And um nice. I think I even turned turned Jim on to like because he wanted to put together a guitar rig, you know, and I helped him, you know, choose some of the stuff for it and and stuff. Yeah, it's definitely has a good selection of guitars when when they go live. Huge, huge setup for rigs with uh, multiple guitars. Yeah, it's nice, really nice. So it's nice to hear where that would have originally started from. It's cool. Yeah, Very yeah, cool. that might have been the inspiration on that. I've got a version of Someday which doesn't have you playing those riff parts. This version is prior to bringing you into the studio to put down guitars. So this is entirely just with synths oh yeah instead of any guitar parts um and then i'll play you the final version as we hear it on the album um so you can see and possibly remember what it was like sitting listening to this in the studio ready to put those guitar parts down 25 years ago yeah yeah i mean i uh, i haven't heard it in years so similar to yeah that's what i was saying they had their they had their shit together man they had the tunes all that that david i mean yeah because i remember him saying about how he didn't change anything on some of those songs you know as you see right there with the demo so you got to cut jim as a as a co-producer on the thing for sure mm. i mean david added his bits wherever he could but but they they were very together. The song sounds like, it sounds like they were very tight before they even came into the studio. Yeah. And then when they were put together, they were like, yeah, that's what we want to achieve. Yeah. Um, how long do you think, or do you know, bef you know, before you were brought in? At what stage were you brought in in the project? Um, it, it was um, like, it was ongoing. I, I don't think it wasn't like they had the whole album mapped out with all the tracks and stuff. I think they were, you know, they got a couple ready for me and I played on them. And then like, you know, like I said, this guy, Simon Franklin, um, you know, they would do a day with him. They'd get another tune or another couple of tunes going. I'd come in, play guitar over the course of, a couple of months probably you know so uh yeah i'm not sure quite how that went but they, it was an ongoing like i remember just working on the cores and not 
maybe during that time, David did, you know, like a Celine song or something like that. But I think he devoted a bunch of time there to doing their record. And since they were staying at the house and stuff, it had to. Yeah, it's kind of you're here. You're right here. You're practicing. We might as well. Let's do this. Yeah. Closer was the next one I've got on the list was a single as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Too. It's beautiful. I, I always wondered why she said close air. Yeah, it's kind of an extended kind of strange what vocal, isn't it? What will I see if I look closer, 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 closer. And I, I remember asking Andrea about that, and um, she was just she said i think something to the effect of it sounded more interesting it does yeah. i guess it does and the reason that we're talking about it and wondering about it now i guess it it, it lends to that intrigue doesn't it yeah yeah i mean because it was when, when you work on a song um when i work on a song i'm hearing it over and over and over for like you know hours and so all the little nuances that the vocals doing and stuff i get pretty uh pretty inside you know and uh so, and i remember that song always it, it had that sort of like um intrigue of like why is she saying close air you know but um yeah i did end up asking her about it all those tunes you know i, I don't know the order but just in a row and and i remember doing like we two or three sessions a week you know uh wow. when it was going hot and heavy there or maybe I do two sessions and come back the next week and do another two. I mean, like two days. The sessions were usually six hours, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, each song represents a three-hour session. And sometimes more than the, the more guitar-heavy tunes, uh, we would a lot of times spend six hours on a song. But sort of the studio thing was always like three hours per tune kind of thing. But we would go and do it, what they call a double session, which would be a six hour session. And I, and most or if not all of the chorus sessions were always like double sessions, you know, because, and, and they would, you know, yeah, I didn't see the behind the scene, well, not behind the scenes, but I wouldn't see the work that would go on when I wasn't there, obviously, but I'd show up and they'd have, a couple of tracks ready for me to work on, you know? So there was a bunch of work that went into those. That was one of the few, not few, but so many, of, especially with David Foster, that the, the songs we worked on were, were just like one-off, not one-off, but like it was just a song. It wasn't a whole album project that we were working on. You know, like with Celine, we, you know, I would end up playing on a few songs for the record, but they were the hits. David was very hit oriented and he um, he didn't do a, a very many, I mean, when I met him in, in 90 to the present day, he didn't do bands and do albums like that. The cores were a very, that they were a real exception to, I mean, in the, in the 80s, you know, there was Chicago and there was the Tubes and, um, he did work with with some bands but the cores were one of the only things i can't remember another group uh record like that 
or or even a whole record like that david would usually just do the hit you know for this album the only one i've got on this list is um, a b-side that was released on one of their singles um the track's called rainy day hmm. really lovely track wow. really i'm amazed you didn't hit the album um let me play you a little bit of it now That is me for sure. Because the thing that really let me know is that there's those notes that start the tune, those harmonics, that's like something I do a lot. And that band, band, and that's definitely one of my parts. Wow. So that wasn't on the record. That wasn't on the record. It was a B side on the Love to Love You single. Um, so wow. you got that, but b-side you knew more about it than i did i i i just assumed every song i played on made the record but um yeah that was a good little tune and i i do remember well i mean when i hear that part that's like the kind of part i do for sure yeah you you it's like you know your own children isn't it it's you, you kind of know if it's, it is you, you can hear your baby crying and know yeah. it's yours you know <laughs> yeah exactly uh yeah that's a that's a pretty cool little tune it wasn't like there were a lot of musicians coming in and out playing on it, like, like the Wrecking Crew playing on all those hits that we didn't know it was them kind of thing. Mm. This was just, you know, Simon Franklin, David, Jim, you know, and the girls, but there weren't any outside musicians besides me, you know, that, that on mo and Simon Phillips on that couple yeah. of tunes, but um, yeah. You know what? They had real bass. My friend Neil Steubenhouse played on one of the songs. You know, I think literally he came in and did one session because they wanted real bass on that one song, you know. He's been a good friend of mine for a long time. I, I forgot that he had played on that, played on the song. So it was cool. Like I said, I mean, the, the takeaway from the whole thing was they were so good at what they did and they were so proficient on their instruments. And Jim was, was so good and had all the parts and wrote all the parts and stuff um, that why use an outside person? you know clear cut very clear cut yeah it was great to hear you reminisce for tracks you haven't heard for 20 years yeah and still be enthused about them that's lovely yeah and like i said um man i've been because i i have my ipod in shuffle mode when i do my bike ride and, and the mm. bike ride is like two hours you know and uh i was just recently thinking, God, I need some new music on here because I leave stuff on there forever. That record would be perfect to put on there. I'll, I'll relive it and uh, dig those songs all over. Do enjoy it. Thank you so much for sp spending the time. It's been great to chat. Thank you for agreeing to come on and keep playing. Your work is amazing. Thanks. And so ends the second interview for the Causecast and indeed the first episode of the series. Michael Thompson mentioned in the interview that he was friends with Neil Steubenhouse, who played bass, uh, the live bass for Toss the Feathers. I reached out to Neil and he kindly came back to me with um, a quote that he said I could read out on the show, uh, just to give you some context of what he did um, and his experience, however brief that may have been. One thing you learn about recording 
is that some experiences are completely devoid of an experience. David Foster called me to be at Record Plant one morning for an overdub at around 10am. The song turned out to be Toss the Feathers. I did not know the name of the song or the artist prior to arriving, and nobody from the band was there. It was just David, his engineer, and me. By 12 noon, I was finished. I recalled that it was good, but don't remember much else from the session. I heard rumblings later that the group was taking off, and around that time, I heard the track once or twice. I would have loved to have met them, but that never ultimately happened. So a huge thank you to Neil for those brief comments regarding his time in the studio recording for Toss the Feathers. I just want to take a moment to again thank Simon Phillips and Michael Thompson for giving of their time so freely to discuss something that was so long ago. Um, It was great to hear the stories and for them to reminisce what it was like to be in the studio at the time of the album's creation. Thank you also for listening. Please do reach out to me if at all possible, if you've enjoyed the content. If there's something you wanted to discuss in the content, maybe I can have you on the Causecast so we can discuss it and others can listen in. Feel free to contact me through, probably easiest is the Instagram page, which is Causecast. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for spending the time. I hope you found this insightful, fun, and I'll see you in the next episode.